Today, I'm going to start something that's utterly ridiculous. Um, I'm going to start trying to cover each book in the Bible in one week as we move through um, every book in the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation sequentially. Today, I'm going to try to cover Genesis. So let me tell you how ridiculous this is. Um, Back in 2010, I started preaching through Genesis and preached 65 messages. So I'm going to try to condense 65 messages into 35 minutes. Uh, so we're going to have to, to, to really haul to get through this. Um, but let me tell you why I'm trying to do this. I, I'm not trying to do this so that you will just know what I think about Genesis. Um, I, I'm really trying to do this so that your engagement in the Word of God, that your time in the Word of God can be more productive and more fruitful by giving you an overview of every one of these books so that you can spend time in your Bible reading it for yourself with some context and some big picture letting you know what is going on. Now, let me say a couple of things. Um, As I present all of the material through this series, I I want you to know that, that I believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, So there may be some things that I'll say, because I'm going to talk about oral tradition and shaping these stories. Um, There's some things I'm going to say that I I am wanting to say them, but I want you to know, I believe Scripture is inspired by God. I believe it is without error, but I also believe he used human authors um, under his inspiration and guidance to to communicate exactly what he wanted, um, but they had a role in that, and they shaped it, and, and who they were and who they're speaking to is really important in all of that. I also want you to know that I believe all of the scripture is historically true, but the Bible is not written so that we will know history. All of these events are historically accurate. There really was an Adam, there really was an Eve. But the Bible is not written to try to give us history. The Bible is written to give us theology. It's trying to let us know what is true and how we should respond to all of that. In the midst of all of that, I also want to let you know that I believe that Scripture is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean it is immediately all about Jesus Christ. You you don't have to take every single thing and connect it immediately to Jesus Christ. It leads ultimately to Christ, and we will see that. But you're, you're not supposed to just free associate and say, hey, don't you see this parallel between, for instance, in the book of Genesis, a parallel between Joseph and Jesus? Well, there is a parallel between Joseph and Jesus, but it's not because Joseph is being presented as some kind of people will call it a type of Jesus. It's because Joseph is being presented as the wise person and Jesus was wise. So there's parallels. Um, but everything, we, we don't just look for anything that seems similar and say it's about Jesus. The New Testament is our guide to highlight the things that are about Jesus. However, I love Graham Cole's uh, quote when he says this, God has a project. He's telling a story is what he's saying. He won't let his fallen creation go. Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the divine plan. As we move through scripture, we're going to see the story. We're going to see that Jesus is the linchpin of that story. His coming in his first advent to redeem us, his restoration of creation to its um, original design and his rule over that, which by the way, that part hasn't happened yet. 
The Bible is about Jesus, but it's not just about our salvation. That puts us too much in the center of the story. Jesus' mission includes a first coming to redeem and a second coming to rule. And it's the reestablishment of his rule that is the real big picture. And that's important for us to understand. And it's important for us to understand, as I talk about the book of Genesis, in the context of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Um, It it literally just means five scrolls, Um, these five tukes, um, as they're put together. um, The Jews call them the Torah, um, which means the teachings. It's the foundations of everything. These, These five books provide the foundation for what God is doing. And let me just run through this really quick. We're going to expand on this as we move through each one of these books. The book of Genesis begins by introducing us to God and his plan to use a nation to bring blessing to everybody and how we should respond to that. It really is the creation, the election of the seed that God is going to use to accomplish his plan. Exodus is kind of the constitution for the people. It shows um, God's regulations for how they're supposed to live and that God is present within them. We're going to see that uh, very clearly. God's presence being with them. And the fact that God is present within, with them is what leads us to Leviticus. Because if the presence of God is right here in your midst, how do you live And that's what the book of Leviticus is going to say. The book of Leviticus is going to say, here's how we maintain fellowship with a holy God who's in our midst by keeping ourselves pure, by taking care of our sins, confessing our sins, by living as a distinct people and remembering him on a regular basis. That's Leviticus. What Numbers does is Numbers comes along and says, yes, God is with you and his purposes can't be thwarted by rebellion from within or opposition from without. And and that's something we need to remember. God's going to accomplish his purposes. He was going to redeem no matter how um, rebellious the nation of Israel was. He's going to redeem no matter how much opposition can come from the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Akkadians or Satan himself. God is going to redeem. He can't be thwarted by his purposes, can't be thwarted by rebellion from within or opposition from without. And then in Deuteronomy, what we get is what we always need, and that is a reaffirmation of our commitment to God's plan. The book of Deuteronomy is, um, it is a series of sermons that Moses preaches near the end of his life, calling the people to be recommitted to being involved in this big plan of God. That's how these first five books, creation and election of the seed, the constitution, how you live with God in your midst, his purposes can't be thwarted, and you have to be committed to it. That's the Pentateuch, okay? We're going to focus our attention today on the book of Genesis. Out at the Connection Center, there's some resources. There's a survey of the Pentateuch, um, a a summary front and back by Eugene Peterson from his um, introduction in the message. Um, There is um, a a summary of, uh, by Eugene Peterson from the message of the book of Genesis. Um, There's another chart that I'm going to tell you about in just a little bit. And then this chart on Genesis, this, these charts that I've put together over the last 35 years, uh, these charts are really going to be the foundation for what I'm using to teach through this series. So I guess I would encourage you um, from now on, on the way in, Next week, there'll be a chart on Exodus out there. Grab the chart on the way in, and it'll help you follow along with the message a little bit better. We're going to do two things as we look at each one of the books of the Bible. Uh, We're going to do three things. We're going to look at the context in which it was seen. Uh, We're going to say, okay, who's writing? When's he writing? Who's he writing to? What's What's he trying to communicate? The context, the background, its setting, its original setting uh, of the original author speaking to the original audience. So we need to interpret it that way. 
Then we're going to look at the content, how the book is arranged and what it actually says. And then finally, we're going to land on some convictions and say, okay, well, given um, what was said to the original audience, that God wanted us to understand the principles that are there, how should we respond to that? That's where we're going to go. So we're going to start off here with the context. Who's writing? Who's reading the original messages? Where are they? When did this take place? And why is all of this going on? So let's Let's get going. I had 65 messages to do this before. I now have 27 minutes is what the clock back there tells me. Uh, And so here's here's what we're going to say. Who composed Genesis? Moses is the one who composed Genesis. It doesn't, he he never says I'm I'm Moses. He doesn't sign it. But, But it's very clear that Moses is the composer. Jewish tradition, everything says and points to Moses being the person who shapes the oral tradition. I need to talk about that for just a minute. These stories from creation until Moses, which is a, a, a large number of years, at least 2,500 years, these, these stories that Moses is shaping here have been passed down. And we know that because there are other religions in the world that have similar stories. Um, so something originally happened. And, and the stories have been passed down. They've been corrupted into some other things like the Anuba Elish, um, which is the Akkadian um, uh, creation epic, uh, the Gilgamesh epic. They, these stories have been corrupted into other things. But as they have been passed down, they were preserved so that Moses could get them. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is going to take the accurate record of what was passed down to him, and he's going to shape that. He's going to frame it into a message that has a lot of beautiful literary design to it. So he is, he is shaping the tradition that's been handed down to him from the beginning. Now that raises a question of, of where were they and when did this take place? Where were they? Uh, Moses and the Israelites. So this is Moses preaching messages to the Israelites. That's basically what's going on. Pick your pastor, whether um, it is David Jeremiah or um, Andy Stanley, whoever you want to pick. Pick your pastor. Here's what they are doing these days. They're preaching a series of messages, and then those messages become a book. That's basically what Moses is doing. Moses is preaching these messages to the Israelites, and he's got about 40 years as they're wandering in the desert. They're on their way from Egypt, where they have just been delivered. This is the setting where they are. They are on their way from Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. During that 40 years of wandering, Moses is preaching these messages to them. So you need to keep in mind... Moses preaching these messages, 40 years, he shapes them into what we now have as Genesis. And he is preaching to a group of people who've just been delivered out of Egypt. God showed his powerful hand in Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt. There's all kinds of allusions in Genesis to the Egyptian captivity because those people have just come out of the captivity. The people who are hearing these messages for the original, in the original setting. They're coming out of Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land where they have been given a huge task by God. Go into the promised land and conquer it. The problem is when they arrive in the promised land, it's going to be occupied by the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Um, All of those nations are going to be there, and they're not too keen on this idea of the the Jews returning to occupy the land. So it's going to require holy war that we'll eventually get to in the book of Joshua. They're going to have to go in to conquer the land. There's going to be strong opposition against them, but God is giving them this task. 
And Moses is writing to that group. Keep that in mind. Moses writing to a group of people who've just been redeemed out of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land where they're supposed to conquer. Now, where's all this taking place? (laughs) Uh, This is taking place um, in the Middle East. Here's a map of of part of the world. Okay, you can see Africa there. I'm going to zero in on this part right here because this is where it's all taking place. So I'm going to get another map up here. This is a map of that area. And, and it, it is within this area that these events are taking place, okay? Um, I'll put it together for you in just a little bit. The first thing we have to talk about is, is the Garden of Eden. Where, where is the Garden of Eden? Um, Genesis 2 says he drove man out. Um, he, he drove man out, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, Adam and Eve were told to move. As soon as they sinned, they had to move. I've said this many times. Moving is a result of the fall. Um, If you've ever had to move, if you're thinking about moving, if you have to move, it's because of sin and the fall. Um, As soon as they sinned, God said, you move out of the garden. He he moved them out of the garden, but he, he put an angel there to guard the way so they would not be able to get back in. Now, I don't know what impact the flood had on the Garden of Eden, but I know we don't know exactly where it is. It's probably somewhere over in what is called the Fertile Crescent. Somewhere in the Middle East, um, this Fertile Crescent, either down near the Gulf of uh, Suez, uh, maybe up where the Tigris and the Euphrates Valley uh, or rivers come together. Um, It could have been somewhere in Canaan. We don't know, and we're never going to (laughs) know. We we do know that once they were were, um, evicted from the Garden of Eden, Cain, who is uh, the son of Adam and Eve, when he is banished, He tries to get back in, in in chapter 3, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It seems like he's trying to settle where where he could get back into the entrance. But we don't know exactly where that takes place. The rest of the book is going to really take place um, in in that same area, but it's going to start in a different place. Abraham is called from the Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, that's where he lived. He, he, was, he was a pagan. God called him out of that pagan religion. He's going to travel up in chapter 12. He's going to travel up to Haran, which is probably his ancestral homeland. There's a town there named Haran, and he has um, a brother named Haran. So it's probably their ancestral homeland. He's going to travel there. God's going to call him. His father is going to travel with him. His father's going to die. And then he's going to end up down here in what we call the promised land, this, this area that is now um, Israel. It's part of uh, Lebanon, the Palestinian state. That's what it is currently today. But, but here's the promised land. It's this area. And, <clears throat> and the stories in Genesis are going to really largely, and in the Pentateuch, they're going to um, settle in on this area that, that we call the promised land. Now it's Israel, a little bit of Jordan, um, Palestinian states, uh, some of Lebanon is, is what we're talking about the area here. Now, the next question, when did all this happen? Well, I've got to answer that in two different ways. The events themselves happened at one period of time, but Moses is writing much later. So the events covered from the book take place from the creation through the life of Jacob. And, and we can date pretty clearly. I'll show you this in just a minute. The life of Jacob begins around 1806 BC. Now, creation, there's a harder time trying to date that. 
if the chronologies are put together in the Old Testament and they're put together back to back and there's no gaps, um, creation is probably around 4,000 BC, 6,000 BC for us. That's when Adam and Eve would have lived. However, we happen to know that all of the genealogies don't have every name in them. Because when you put genealogies together, there are some names everywhere that's missing. Don't let that worry you, because when it says the son of, the word in Hebrew, bene, the word can mean the heir, the descendant of. And so there are sometimes, in order to package these um, genealogies in a way that has the appropriate numbers, either 10 or 14, uh, sometimes 7, these these important... um, they're, they're trying to shape them with some literary design. Sometimes they're going to be selective. And so creation, maybe 4,000 BC, maybe even you could go back to 8,000 BC. Creation, Adam and Eve living six to 8,000 years ago, literal human people that lived. Okay, so that's the events are taking place from creation, whenever that was, 8,000 BC, 4,000 BC, up to around 2000 BC, 1806, a little bit, a little bit more than that, but round numbers. That's when the events that are being described take place. Um, there's a, there's a chart that I, it's not at the connection center, but I pass this out a bunch of times that, that puts all of this flow together. Um, and if you want this chart, let me know, I'll put some out there, but working with a couple of different things, and this is out at the connection center as well. You can either start with some solid dates we have and work out, or you can start with some solid dates we have and work back. There's some things that are really clear because we know um, from what the Bible says and what we know from clear historical archaeological research search, that we have some solid anchor points, and then we can work out from that these solid dates that we absolutely are very clear on. We can work out and put a genuine chronology together. Um, it's harder once you get behind Abraham because some of the genealogies there, like I said, may have multiple people um, between one descendant to another descendant. But once we get to the birth of Abraham, um, we're pretty solid on where all of these dates are taking place. Um, So Abraham's birth is probably 2166 B.C., This is going to keep going, and we have a bunch of other things. Joseph's death at the end of the book is going to be 1806 B.C. So this is is kind of when all of these things are taking place. But when did, did Moses write this? Moses is writing after the exodus from Egypt, solid dates, if you'll look, exodus from Egypt, 1446 BC, that's the the best date. There are some people who will argue for 1290 BC, which is a little bit further, um, closer to us, but 1446 is the better date. Um, Moses is writing after the exodus from Egypt in 1446 BC until just before the conquest of the land, this is Moses writing all the Pentateuch all the way up through Deuteronomy, in 1406. By the way, some of this is satisfying for a number of you. Here's the message to take away from what I just took. This is real stuff. This is real history. These are not myths. These are not made up stories. These are real stories of real people that God is using to teach us the lessons that he wants to teach us. So the question is, why is he doing this? Well, Moses is writing, if we now know who Moses is, who he's writing to, when he's writing, Moses is writing to encourage the Israelites to trust the Lord God, who's the sovereign creator of the universe, that's chapters 1 through 11 in Genesis, 
And he has elected them to be a part of the grand story of redemption. That's, that's what he's doing. He's encouraging them to say, God is the creator, chapters 1 through 11. He's chosen you, chapters 12 through 36. So be faithful to him, which is going to be seen in the life of Joseph. So now let's look at the content, what's actually going on. We know who's writing, who he's writing to. This is important to understand because we need to understand not just verses that we pick out and randomly apply. Within the context of the whole book, why is this book being written? Who's writing? Who's he writing to? We know that. Now the question becomes, how is this presented and what is being said? How is Genesis organized? Well, I can answer that question a number of different ways. First of all, in an overall way, I can say Moses is faithfully preserving and shaping the oral tradition under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, he's taking what has been passed down to him, and the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing that he's getting it right, and he is shaping that in a particular way. I want you to see the clear shaping of the story. Okay, It's not always apparent when you're reading through this um, in your English Bibles. But in a Hebrew text, there's a weird word that shows up. It's the word toledot. Okay? Now, I know none of you have ever heard this word, toledot. It's kind of a fun word to say, toledot. Um, but it, it is a word that is hard to translate. And in fact, all the English versions struggle with how to translate it. Some versions translate it, this is um, the generations of... Or they may say, this is what became of. Um, Or it will say, this is what happened to. It's basically a story that is unfolding with kind of a topic line. And there are 10 toledotes in the book of of Genesis. Um, After an introduction in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, that's an introduction, we'll talk about that in just a minute, the Toledotes begin to roll out, and at chapter 2, 4, 5, 1, 6, 9, and so on, this word Toledote shows up. And it's going to tell, after God creates the heavens and the earth, what became of the heavens and the earth? Well, (laughs) man was placed there and sin entered in. Well, what became of this man named Adam? Well, (laughs) um, he continued to have a lot of children, and they were all dying. And and this leads us up to this man named Noah, who was the last person who's born in that section. Well, what became of Noah? Well, what became of Noah is God started all over with him. Um, The sin of man had gotten so rampant that God decided he needed to cleanse the earth with a flood and start all over. And with Noah, he gives Noah the same commands he gave Adam. Well, when Noah gets off the ark, there's Ham, Shem, and Japheth. What happened to them? Well, they spread around the whole world and had a bunch of languages. The Tower of Babel and what's called the Table of Nations. But the Table of Nations ends with um, Shem. And, and, And what became of Shem? Well, Shem is the pathway from Noah, his son Shem, a Semite, that is, an Israel, that is one of the Semites, um, is Abraham. So what became of Shem? Well, what became of Shem is the stories of Abraham. What became of, and now we use his father's name because that's the, how you title it. What became of Terah, the father of Abraham? Well, you get Abraham's stories. Abraham has two children, Ishmael and Isaac. What became of Ishmael? Well, he's not the guy we want to we follow. We don't want to see his path. So that's tidied up really quick in the Toledot of Ishmael. A real short section that just says, don't pay, don't pay attention to this guy. Now, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Well, we want to tidy up. Esau, because he's not the one through whom the blessing is going to come, and we want to get to Jacob. 
And then we end up with these Joseph stories under the heading of Jacob. So there's one sense in which very clearly, literarily, the book folds, unfolds with these, with these toledotes that are, that are rolling out. Ten sections that are, this is what became of this, this is what became of this, this is what became of this. Because it's historically showing you how all of this is happening. Now, there's another way you can think about this. And if you take the big categories, you've got these primeval events, these, these before the main history takes place in chapters 1 through 11. And by the way, that covers about 4,000 years, okay? There's a huge section that is being covered in the first 11 chapters. Then you're going to get the patriarchal events, the ones about the forefathers of, of the nation of Israel in chapters 12 through 50, and that covers about 400 years. So 11 chapters for 4,000 years, and then um, the rest of the chapters, uh, they, they cover about 400 years. And so you can, you can see the book of G- Genesis arranging these 10 panels, but clearly chapters 1 through 11 are these big major events, the creation, the flood, um, starting all over, the table of nations, all of those things, um, the spreading of everyone, the Tower of Babel, all of those are in chapters 1 through 11. But when you get to chapter 12, now we're going to zero in on the family of Abraham and Isaac, his son, his son, Jacob, and particularly his son, Joseph. Now, there's another way you can think about this is just kind of major people. Um, Adam is kind of the major guy who gets things started in 1 through 5. Noah, a big section in 6 through 10. They come off the ark and then they spread. Um, Abraham in 12 through 25. Jacob in 26 through 36. And Joseph in 37 to 50. We get major Abraham stories, major Jacob stories, major Joseph stories. We don't get very many Isaac stories. He's a player, but he, he's, he's a minor player. Here's the other way that I think it's theologically helpful for us to frame the book of Genesis. The creation, and and God is being presented as the creator, the sovereign God of the universe. That's chapters 1 through 11. He's the creator. In chapters 12 through 36, he enters into a covenant with Abraham and his family. In chapters 37 through 50, it's the application of the sermon. It's the application of this message through the person of Joseph. Joseph is being presented as this guy who is the example of someone who understands what's being said. And here's what's being said. God is sovereign, chapters 1 through 11. He can create the world. He can kick you out of the garden. He can cleanse the world with a flood and star all over again. He can give a restart with Noah, and when they start to mess things up, he can scatter them all over the world because he's sovereign. He's in charge of this thing, and his plan is not going to be thwarted, and his plan is to start with this family of Abraham and make these blessing promises to him that he makes as promises in chapter 12. He puts them in a covenant in chapter 15, ratifies the covenant with a sign in circumcision in chapter 17. And then he passes that on to his son Isaac and his son Jacob because this is the family that God is going to use in his grand story to bring about redemption, restoration, and rule. Redemption through a descendant of Abraham, restoration through the work that he has done in our lives, and then ultimately when he comes back to establish his rule again, which is what was originally in place in the Garden of Eden. 
There's, God is sovereign. God is good. He's got a plan to rescue us. He's on a mission. He's on a mission from himself to rescue us and restore everything to the place it should be. And then what we have at the end of the book, because as you're reading through the book, when you get to Joseph in chapter 37, the feel of the book just changes. All these covenant things are not in there anymore. You just get the story of this guy who, within the ups and downs of his life, is still trusting God through the whole thing. So if you take the chart, um, what you see is it flowing in, in this way. I think there's the creation, the covenant, and then character of people who understand that God is sovereign and God is good. He's got a good plan. He's made these wonderful promises to take care of everything. Those are the three big sections you see in the black there as it moves across. I've got the Toledotes laid out there, but in the middle section, it's set up differently because that whole section story there in the middle is about all of this covenant stuff. Um, It is about God making a, a, a promise to bless Abraham, and then it expands on that with a whole bunch of stories about him in the land, and then him and his seed, his, his descendants. Then it's going to tidy up Ishmael, because we don't want to talk about him. Then it's going to move into Isaac and all of these Jacob stories. And then at the end of that, it's going to tidy up Esau, because we don't want to talk about him. And we're going to move to the, the Toledote of Jacob, which is all of these Joseph stories. Now, in this arrangement, I want to highlight these three sections that kind of don't fit. They're not part of the flow, but they're important. Um, in the middle of the page there, you'll see I've highlighted the account of Ishmael. That's because it's trying to tidy that up and go, yes, um, Abraham has two sons, but we're not looking at Ishmael, but I'm going to tidy him up and move him along. Um, Isaac is going to have two sons, but he's going to tidy up Esau and move him along. But there's another s- section at the very beginning, chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3. That section at the beginning doesn't fit in the Toledotes. It's the introduction And it's the introduction because here's what we're starting out with in the book of Genesis. We're starting out with not a story about creation. If you read Genesis 1 and you ask questions about creation and dinosaurs, you're missing the point. This is a story about the creator. It's a focus on the creator. It introduces you to the person who's the author of the whole thing. And what it says is God creates and he takes messed up things that are formless and empty and he turns them into things that are good, very good, blessed and holy. That's the introduction to the book of Genesis. Here's God. Here's what he does. He turns things around. If you're talking about the age of the earth and dinosaurs, you're missing the point. The point is God is a good God who takes messed up things and he redeems them and turns them around. Now, over at the end of the book, we need to talk about this. These Joseph stories are really the stories that say, if you really believe chapters one through 11, God's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. And he's got a plan to rescue us. And he's incorporating us into that plan. Then you live like Joseph who trusted God, whether he was, um, blessed by his father or sold into slavery. Whether he was um, ruling in Potiphar's house or thrown into prison because he was, um, tra- he was trapped by a woman who was trying to seduce him. Whether he had risen to the level of being a leader in the prison or, or whether he was forgotten about or whether he was leading in Israel. And even when he was facing his brothers, in all of that, he is trusting God. So what's the message of Genesis? 
Um, here's what I have at the bottom of my, my chart. Moses writing to Jews coming out of bondage in Egypt and preparing to enter the promised land organized the oral tradition to demonstrate that the God of the Israelites is the sovereign creator God of the universe, chapters 1 through 11, and that the Israelites had a covenant right to take possession of the land, 12 through 36, God said, you can have this land, because it was given by covenant to their forefathers in order to motivate them to trust God fully, like Joseph did, and enter and conquer the land inhabited by others. Here's one thing I think you can kind of get for what's going on in this original writing of the book. It's a title deed to the land. When they show up to conquer Israel, they pull Genesis out and they say, Listen, Moses just showed us all this stuff. God's in charge. He can give the land to whoever he wants to. He gave the land to us because he's going to use us to grow to be a nation through whom a king will be born, and that king will bless the entire world. All of that, I think, is summarized if you're trying to figure out where's one verse that pulls it all together. I think it's Genesis 50, 20. This is when Joseph, at the very end of the book, is facing his brothers who have betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and he's looking at them and he's forgiving them. And what he says is, you intended to harm me. That word for harm is um, make me suffer. You intended really bad. You intended this for evil. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No matter what is going on, you can count on God being the one who uses that to do something good in our lives. So where does this lead us? What, what conviction should we come away with? We know who's writing, who he's writing to. We know how he's framing it with these toledotes to say God is the creator. He's made covenant promises and we should trust God like Joseph did. So what do we come away with here? I think there's a couple. Some, some things we should believe. We should believe that God is sovereign and telling a story of redemption. That's how this thing starts. God is sovereign. He created everything. He can do what he wants. And he's telling a story of rescuing us. And God is good and he has a plan to reconcile us to himself. I think that's what, what we should believe as we read the book of Genesis. Um, how should we behave? couple things. Even if others have a plan for evil with an intention to harm us, God is using it for good. Everything works together for the good of those who love God. No matter what's going on in your life, trust that God's in control. He's got a good plan. Trust him. I think there's another one we can come away with. No matter what lies before us, I can trust and obey God as I live out my part of the story. I can trust and obey God to go conquer the land, to go uh, make good on the promises that he's given me. No matter what lies before me, all the challenges I face in my life, if I can go back to these foundational realities, God is sovereign. He's the creator. He's in charge of everything. Nothing's out of his control. And he's got a great plan to bless everyone. As long as I'm moving toward that, and I believe that, I keep reviewing that in my mind. God is sovereign. God is good. God's in control. Nothing can thwart his plans. And he's got a plan to rescue me because he loves me. Then I can move forward and obey. Where does all this fit? Well, this is the beginning of everything. That's my title for Genesis. It's the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of life, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of substitution. Um, we see sacrifices in here. This is where the story begins. All the elements of the story begin right here. So where do we go from here? Some next steps. 
I think you should solidify your belief in the absolute sovereignty of God as you encounter Genesis. God's in charge. He does what he wants. He chooses who he wants to choose, not on the basis of their merit, but on the basis of his plan. Reaffirm your trust in the goodness of the story God is telling. God's not out to get you. God is not out to get you. God loves you. He wants to rescue you. And trust him for what lies ahead. Now, in just a minute, we're going to remember the point that this story eventually gets us to. Um, and that is Jesus. It's very unclear at the beginning of the Bible. It's going to get more clear as we move through about how God is going to do it. And it's going to be through Jesus. But the first time we get a hint of this is in Genesis chapter three. And by the way, I know when we look back, we can go, oh, it's Jesus. This isn't very clear. This is just a little piece. This is God talking to Satan in the form of the serpent. I will put hostility between you and between the woman and between your offspring and between her, her offspring. There's going to be a conflict. He will strike you on the head and you will strike him on the heel. Um, talking to Satan, you're going to get a death blow to your head, even though you will wound him in the heel. Um, all this is saying is throughout the rest of the story, there's going to be conflict between good and evil. And a descendant of Eve is going to be the victor. Um, when we get to chapter 12, God's speaking to Abraham. He's zeroed in now on the family of Abraham. Yahweh said to Abraham, go out from your land and from your relatives and from the house of your father to the land I will show you. By the way, there's a lot I could say about that. I need to move on. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. Last line, really important. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's going to be a descendant of Eve, it's going to be a human. This person through whom all these blessings are going to come is going to be a descendant of Abraham. It's going to be one of his descendants. He's going to be Jewish. And he's going to come from the tribe of Judah, chapter 49. This is um, Jacob blessing his sons. And when he gets to Judah, he says this, the scepter, the ruling king will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until uh, he to whom it belongs. The word there is Shiloh. We don't really know what it means, but until the one to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. At this point, we know it's a human. It's a Jew from the tribe of Judah, and he's going to rule and everyone will be submitted to him. This is God's story. Um, how do you get into God's story? Genesis 15, 6. Paul focuses on this in Romans chapter 5. He believed in Yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God's telling this grand story of redemption. He reminds us of that through scripture. He reminds them of this um, through sacrificial systems and, and memorials. And he reminds us of his grand story through what we're going to do here. By remembering what Christ has done for us. And remembering that when you believe in Yahweh and his provision, you believe that he's sovereign, he's good, and you're trusting in him. When you have believed that and you believed in the provision that God has made through a human who was Jewish from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life 
lived a perfect life, shed his blood for us, then you can have communion, reconciliation with God, which is God, what God wanted to do in the beginning. He wanted to be in the garden with us in perfect fellowship. We messed it all up. So he had to come up with a plan um, in his wisdom that will demonstrate his grace so that we will love him more. So I'm going to ask you um, when I finish praying to, to come forward or uh, over here or in the back, if you're near the back, and take these elements, take them back to your seat. But as you do, I want you to be thinking, God's sovereign, God is good, and this is what he's done to rescue me. And he will come again to finish the project and establish his rule. And we will do this to remind us until he comes back. Father, thank you for uh, revealing to us your grand plan. Father, I pray that you would... um, draw our attention to the big things that you're doing in this world. Lord, it's, it's not about us and our cars and our entertainment and our houses. It's about you rescuing us and you developing this plan. And you invite us to be a part of that story like you did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Help us to be faithful parts of the story. And along the way, to remember, until you come back to finish it, that this story all is culminating in Jesus Christ. What he did the first time to redeem us, what he'll be doing the second time to rule. Help us to remember.